please, if you're able, please follow uh, along with me in these chapters, uh, 14, 15 and 16. It sounds like a lot, we'll not be going through all verse by verse, don't, don't worry about that. But last week, we thought about chapters 13 and 14, about the great uh, kingdom that would come 150 years later of Babylon. And we're 150 years later, it, w- it would fall. I thought that Babylon represented the kingdom of darkness and the, the king of Babylon uh, is like a picture of, of Satan, a picture of the devil, just as the Passover lamb in Exodus is a picture of our saviour Jesus, so is the king of Babylon a picture of the devil, that he is one who is against God, who has elevated himself up as the, the king of the world. God says, well, actually, you're not. <laughs> you're going to be eaten by the worms as well. And after uh, Isaiah, or God gives Isaiah that picture of Babylon, and that's still 150 years before that comes to place, God returns in verse 24 to, to the, the current problem, the current reality for the people of Judah. So remember, Israel has been split into two after King Solomon died. Israel in the north, the ten tribes, they've been taken by Assyria, the southern tribe, uh, which is now, tribes now called Judah, is where Isaiah finds himself living. And we have this reality with the Assyrians that God is going to destroy them too. So if you notice in verse 24 and, and onwards, there's this idea of God has purposed it. God has ordained this. And because God has ordained it, because God says that this is going to happen, the question is, I think it's the end of verse 27, who can stop it? <laughs> well, nobody, because the power of God's word. But with Isaiah, as we have dived in, here we, we come to this next part. We're going to think about tonight, especially verse 28 uh, and onwards, about two oracles concerning two other places, the, the land of the Philistines. And if we've ever been to, I don't know, a children's Bible club, we know something about the Philistines, I hope. And of course, Moab. And this all happens in the year that King Ahaz dies. Okay. Who was King Ahaz? Well, he is the king that's not a very good king. He's a bad king. In Isaiah chapter 7, God says to the king of Israel, you can have a sign, any sign, you can pick it, and I can show you how my Messiah is going to come. And Ahaz says, nah, I don't really want to do that. And God rebukes him for it. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, we get a list of the, the things that King Ahaz has done wrong. So it opens up that he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He made idols. He sacrificed his own sons. He stole from the temple, which we'll come back to. He lost a battle to another foreign, a, a foreign country, a foreign a tribe. And he decided to worship their God because obviously their God was a little bit better than his God. So he ended up worshipping that God as well. And then it says, after that battle, as he worshipped those other gods, as he sacrificed his own sons, we read just one line. We don't know what happened next, but we read about King Ahaz. He became more unfaithful. You'd wonder how that could be, couldn't you? But he became more unfaithful. And what King Ahaz had been doing is he had had done his calculations, this threat of Assyria in the north, that the best way to to avoid that threat was to to pay up Assyria. So that's why he stole from the temple, try and give them some money to keep them off their back so that the, the, the king wouldn't come down and raid Jerusalem and Judah. 
And one of the books I got for Christmas, I'm reading, is about the, the, the Persia, okay, about that region from in, the, in the ancient history. And there we read of King Sargon II, who probably reigns at the same time as King Ahaz, one of the most powerful kings. And this is, we've got very little about his expertise or his, his uh, ruling over that land at the time. But we've got a few, a few words. And this is what uh, King Sargon says, as he, king of Assyria, as he begins to take over the world. And I think we can see this in King Ahaz. Talking about the other nations. Groveling, they come to me for protection uh, of, all, of all of their lives, knowing that otherwise I would destroy their walls. They fall and kiss my feet. <laughs> Groveling, King Ahaz went to the king of Assyria. He bowed down, kissed his feet, looking for protection. Where were he? Should have been looking for protection for? Not in his walls, not in his viaducts, not in his military might, not even with an alliance of the king of Assyria, but his God. And now as we turn to the Philistines, the Philistines, they have constantly been a thorn in Israel's side, haven't they? They've hated Israel since Israel, the Hebrew people, left Egypt and come into the promised land. So Samson and Delilah, it's a Philistine country in 1 Samuel. We read of the Philistines, they capture the ark from the temple. They are constantly at war with Samuel, Saul, eh, Jonathan, David, and Goliath, of course. Uh, and then later, David actually finds refuge from Saul in Philistine, in Gath. And it's an unlikely place for David to find that. But David finds his safety in that time then, in Gath, in Goliath's city. The people of Judah are looking for safety in their false gods, or maybe even their enemy of Assyria. But here in this passage, we're going to think about tonight, God in his compassion calls us to safety. God in his compassion calls us to safety. So just as if we saw a little child wandering the streets of Newcastle on their own, looking lost, we might say, well, stop, take them in for ice cream, let the police know that you are looking after a child that's gone loose. You have compassion on the child, possibly in tears, and you're going to make sure that they're safe, or at least they will get home or get proper help. And here God, in his compassion, calls us to safety. How does he do it? Well, the first thing we think about tonight is God, in his compassion, calls us to safety as part of his kingdom. As part of his kingdom. The great Babylon and Assyria will be destroyed, and so will little Philistines as well. But look what the Lord will do. So chapter 14, verse 32, the second half of it. The Lord has founded or has established Zion. The Lord establishes his people. That is the only reason Israel is not already wiped off the face of the earth in the Old Testament. Because God has established them. It's the only reason any other nation has come to destroy them hasn't been able to. Because God's people remain, because God himself has established them. The Lord has literally fixed firm his people, that he is their foundation. He's fixed them firm. Not one of those like sticky tape things for your photo frames in your house that will fall down after a while, but he, it's nailed, it's screwed, it, it's utterly secure in the wall. Here his people are established, because the Lord has established them. 
And Paul in, in Colossians 2 talks about that, doesn't he? About being rooted, built up and established in the faith. It's being grounded in, in God, in Jesus. And it is the Lord that fixes them firm in their location. But it's also the Lord that fixes us firm in the faith too. That, that he is the, the foundation for all of us to build on. Because he has established us to be his people. And of course this is going to look forward to, to Zion. This heavenly Zion that will come. That God has established that for his people. The place where God dwells. And the Lord has established his people to be part of his kingdom. And what does that mean for them? What does that mean for us? Was well, the second half of that verse 32 that there's security in our suffering? Here, the afflicted find refuge. That God's people, throughout all their, their suffering and lack of security, they still enjoy safety. Regardless of, of, of the treacherous nations all around them, no matter the threats uh, and troubled times that they have. That God's people continue to find security in him. They're safe. And that's important for us as it was for Israel. But even as a personal application and experience for us. Isn't it that there's security in our saviour. That we might well be afflicted. With all kinds of manner of things. But there's security in Jesus. And only in him. The security in him. But there's also an application for the church, isn't there? That it, the foundation that we have, the only security that we have is Jesus. Not what Israel does or Judah does here, sorry. You know, what King Ahaz did, he had a little bit of God and he, he took this and that. He was doing bribes. He was doing all kinds of different things. He was having these alliances with unbelief. And it falls. And as a church, as Christians, we shouldn't have alliances with people of unbelief, should we? Where Christ is not the foundation, where we have to rest in him. Some of the ecumenical stuff, it will ultimately fail in gospel work. Why? Because the foundation is not Jesus. It's not Christ. I, uh, it might give an outward impression of unity and uh, uh, of unity and uh, an answer to some questions. It might not look like there's opposition. It might seem like there's unity. because But if it's not built on the foundations of Christ, it will fail in God's work. So King Ahaz, who doesn't build on the foundations of Christ, but on other alliances, his kingdom will fail and fall. Israel, Judah will fall because they do not have God for security. And as the people look for security in other places, and as we look for it in other places, we see in the next chapter the things that we treasure most will fail. All these other nations, they, the great treasures that they hold on to, that brings them money, it brings them pride. God says, well, they're worth nothing. And we need to remind them of that too, don't we? That what are we clinging on to? We, if we are part of God's kingdom, we're building on Jesus. Because if not, we have these failing foundations. You know, like the mega concrete and Donny God looks like a good job for a little while, but pressure comes, time passes, it will fail and crumble. And that's what happens with everything except Jesus. Israel is looking for security, 
King Ahaz has been covering all his bases. He's been worshipping other people and things. And that's what the other nations did. The other nations trusted other gods. So maybe in verse 29 and 30 there, verse 29, we're potentially talking about other gods there as well that can't be relied upon. That these other nations around them, they're trusting other gods. And what does it lead to? Well, it leads to a number of, of hard things. So verse 29, that they're going to be broken. If we link this into to Moab as well, what happens in verse chapter 15 and verse 4? We read about the people as they have not trusted in Jesus, trusted in the Messiah, that their soul will tremble, that they would have faint hearts. All their delights, their focus, their confidence is like a, a mat taken from underneath their feet. And when affliction comes their way, their souls tremble. Tremble. Why? Because there's destruction that's going to come. And that's what chapter 15 describes from Moab, the destruction that's going to come. All the, the judgment. It's initially going to be for the nations around. It might be exile for, for Judah. But there's a spiritual reality for those outside of Jesus too, isn't it? About this trouble, this trembling soul that you will have that will lead to your destruction because you do not have Jesus. Because you're not a part of his kingdom that God has established. The Philistines, within a hundred years, will be wiped off the face of the earth. All their cities gone. Within three years of King Ahaz dying, one of their cities has, uh, tries to, to get away from Assyria and they're just sacked and just totally flattened. <laughs> but God in his compassion calls us to stay in safety as part of his kingdom because he establishes it. And that is why we are safe and secure in Jesus. For who can annul what God has said? Nobody. God in his compassion calls us to safety as part of his kingdom. And then secondly, through his king. God in his compassion calls us to safety through his king. By establishing his kingdom through his king. See, we're in chapter 16 this time and, and verse 5 particularly. Here we have a king, an heir to Israel's throne, but he's going to be a king for all people. So verse 4, what are we reading? Or sorry, verse 5. A throne will be established. A throne will be fixed firm. A throne that will never end. A, a, a throne that's not going to fall down like King Ahaz's throne. Or the, the Babylon throne. Or the Assyrian throne. But a fixed throne. So in chapter 16 and verse 5. As God wards the, the people of Moab. He tells them of his plan. Like this throne that's established. So who is this? Well, it's somebody from the, the tent of David, the, the promises of Judah's saviour from the house of David, and that will eventually give us to get us to Jesus. We, we know that. We, we, we get that. But what's the relationship between Moab and David, or Moab and this king? Well, throughout history, Moab had, had been far from Israel spiritually, they were a pagan people. They were an incestuous people. That's how they got started, if you remember, with Lot 
and his daughters. And they were just constantly at war with Israel, standing against Israel. As Babylon was a picture of the evil one and the evil kingdom, so was Moab. Full of pagans. But what happens in scripture? Well, we have a Moabitess, don't we? And Ruth, who comes and she sees the, the grace of God and responds to that grace. And she becomes a worshipper of the one true God. And whenever David is under threat, again, within his own family, he sends, yes, he goes to, sends his family, or he finds safety in the Philistine country at one point, but he sends his whole family for safety in Moab too. So they know all about King David, and we know that his great-granny was Ruth. And here we have, in these verses 5 and 6, it's a, it's a plea that Moab would remember, yes, where they come from, that they are an incestuous people, but that there's hope even from for them. That they ought to seek refuge in this throne, in this Messiah to come. That Jesus would be the one and that they would not be disappointed as they come to him. And as we even come ourselves and we need to come through this King Jesus as his throne is established, we need to come in humility. So it doesn't lead to humiliation. So in verse 6 of chapter 16, we get a picture of Moab's arrogance. Okay, we hear the, their pride and we hear their, their boasting. In verse 8 and 9, we get a picture of the, or verse 8, we get a picture of the antennas, or the agricultural world where they were so proud and they were so fruitful. There's going to be nobody there to sing the songs and the harvest. There's going to be nobody working. They're going to be humiliated. Verse 14 it is as well. It'll be brought into contempt. They'll be very few and feeble. Weaklings. They'll be totally humiliated. What were once strong and powerful people with lots of land, lots of wealth, lots of fruits. Are going to be feeble and few. Because this pride that they have is unbelievable. So look at verses 1 and 2. What is happening here is that the people of Moab are be under threat, that they're, go they're being destroyed in, this, in verses 1 and 2, that Assyria or Babylon are after them. They're, they're going from city to city, place to place, killing everybody in the fields. So that's the picture of, of verses 1 and 2. They're, they're, they're like fleeing birds, scattering. They're just running for their lives. And then in verse 3 and 4, it's almost as if they get to the border with Judah and they have an opportunity to go over the border to a place of safety okay, where destruction will cease and the outcasts of Moab and that there will be a throne there in verse 5. And that's where they stop. <laughs> They're not willing to go over the border to Judah because of this throne. They're fleeing for their lives they're scared, but they're so prideful that they'd rather die than submit to this throne. And that's what happens. Because of this throne, they will not cross over. They refuse help on those terms, for they'd rather die than bow down to that throne. And I think some of us have seen that with people we love too, haven't we? They've done their own thing. 
They might even be on their deathbed, but they say, no. I'm not going to bow down. Here, we see the verse 6 again, the, the pride of Moab. Look how proud they are. Their pride, their arrogance, their insolence, their, their boasting. And what does it lead to? It leads to utter humiliation. But if only they would bow the knee, what would they experience? As those words in verse 6, they would have experienced in humility. As they bowed in the steadfast love. They would experience faithfulness from God. They would know justice and righteousness. The complete opposite of what they would experience. And we ought to humble ourselves before God again. For pride in the very essence is sin. And here is the people of Moab boast that they're not going to bend the knee at Jesus. We like Paul. As he says in Galatians 6, that may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For that is the way, not of humiliation, but of humility and righteousness. And as God sends out this picture of Moab, that they're going to be judged, and as he predicts that they would not bend the knee, that they would stop at the border because they didn't want to go over, we see God's compassion in all of this, don't we? So look at verse 9. This is what the Lord says about this. And it ought to be what we think as well as we think about other people. Therefore, I weep. Verse 11. There are my inner parts moan. God is distraught. God has a heart and a compassion for people and he doesn't want to send anybody to hell. But he knows those who refuse, that's where they will go. And his heart breaks. Such is his compassion. Then he knows they will not listen. And his inner parts moan. He weeps. As we look at our, our God, and we see this as his delight in us, as he cries over those that are outside of him. How do we feel about those people? Because no matter what we feel, God's love is deeper than even our own. And he weeps over them. He moans over them. Maybe we ought to do the same as well. Because the only way for, for us to, to be safe and secure because our God is compassionate, is through this king. It is to, to bow our knee at his throne, regardless of what we face. Because here we have a king that will come, whose throne is established and will continue to be established. A king named Jesus who would humble himself from heaven to earth, who would be humiliated on the cross as they laughed and spat and mocked, taking the full affliction that ought to be ours, sinless yet suffering, humble yet taking hell for us prideful people who should be punished and in his great love and compassion would die for us and give us forgiveness as we bow before him. God in his compassion calls us to safety, doesn't he? Through his king and that we would be part of his established 
kingdom forever through our rock and saviour Jesus. Let's pray.